sense of humor is so important. It has to be, you know, sort of dual. You got to be able to get each other jokes. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So I try to make people laugh at the interview. That's my approach. Welcome to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast, where founders and business leaders talk about how they built a company culture that is so incredible, their employees brag about it. Our show aims to inspire you as you build a Bragworthy culture of your own. Culture building is philosophical and practical, and you'll find both discussed here. Grab a pen and a notebook. We're about to drop some knowledge. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us. Here's your host, Jordan Peace. Welcome back to Bragworthy Culture. Today, we are really fortunate to get to sit down with Vadim Yasinovsky. Vadim is the co-founder and CPO of AirSlate. If you don't know AirSlate, they're creating market-leading products for automating the entire document workflow in one platform. So really, really interesting product, really interesting. I say family of products is probably a better way to put it that you guys are producing. But Vadim, first of all, just thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about you. How did you get from, you know, the early days of life and through school and then eventually the CPO of something using robotic process automation and all of these cool tools that you guys do? How'd that story go? Well, uh, you're making an assumption that there was a school there. Uh, actually, <laughs> school was there, but without any graduations. Uh, so I moved to States when I was 18. I started first company when I was 23. Run it for 16 years, sold it, run a couple of more companies, uh, wonderful internet startups and stuff like that. Some of them win, some of them fail. I was ready to retire in 2007, and something interesting happened. Uh, I have a friend. His name is Semyon Dukac. He's pretty famous. If you ever watch, you know, uh, movie 21, you know, the Blackjack team, uh, MIT Blackjack team, it was partially about him and so on and so forth. He walked in one day and said, hey, you know, I need this thing to fill up PDF form. And I said, leave me alone. I'm about to retire. I have a wonderful life. I was divorced at the time. And uh, he said, no, 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 no. You got to do something. You're getting too sloppy. <laughs> so I wrote the first version, I think, in about 48 hours. And I said, if you're so smart, how about some money? He gave me a $25,000 check, which I never cashed. Gave it back to him in about two months. He got some stock out of this deal. And PDF Filler, which was the first product, got born. The interesting part of the story is that I was enjoying myself. I was like swimming, drinking wine, reading books, and doing some work, like 16 hours a day. But one beautiful day, Bore, who is my co-founder, walked into my life, and he was running the startup for... Uh, it was a social network for scientists, believe it or not. Uh, I know it's a contradictory term, scientists, social <laughs> network. So it's not a big surprise that it had sort of bellied up. But he had some interesting technology for marketing, and he convinced me over about six bottles of wine and a lot of protests from me uh, to actually get him in and uh, start this thing for real. At that point, company had like four people and it was a lifestyle and we were all enjoying each other. 
and Border walked in. We actually still enjoy, all the people enjoy themselves very much. The original people who were the company at that time still there. So it's been, what, uh, 14 years? And that's how it got started. So basically, we went from about 700,000, 600,000 in sales to 20 million in a period of, I'm dyslexic, so I'll, I'll probably lie with the numbers, but in a period of about five years. And then we decided to take first round from General Catalyst. And at that point, I said to Bode, you know what, buddy? You want the money? You got it, but you're going to have to be a CEO. So ever since, which is 2014, Bode has been a CEO. Thanks God I don't have to deal with this stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I stick to the product. It's a long story, but, you know, it encompasses about 14 years of my life. So hopefully you guys got the picture. Well, it's interesting. You don't hear that story very often that you were sort of ready to retire. You were content. You were ready to ride off into the sunset. You got dragged in kind of kicking and screaming, and then you spent 14 years on it now. Jordan, I got to tell you, the biggest mistake one can make is retire. You know, I've tried. I went to Turks and Caicos. I almost bought a house there. In two weeks, I sort of stopped reading. In two more weeks, I stopped working, and then I started drinking too much. Packed my bags, went right back to work. Doesn't work. For us, there is only one way. <laughs> we got to work. I think so, too. We need I, to have a passion in life. I'm a little younger, but I can't imagine. A little younger? You're a hell of a lot more younger. <laughs> you know, it's a podcast. Most people can't see us right now, so. <laughs> uh, okay, fair enough. Well, You can be whatever age you like on a podcast, Fadi. <laughs> Only on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> like you said, you might be lying about the numbers. You might as well lie about that number too. You know, <laughs> I'm not lying about numbers. If I more for numbers, it's not by design. <laughs> I know. I, I'm, I'm just messing with you. Well, great story. I, I, I love it. I love that you're 14 years into this. You're still very much enjoying yourself, enjoying the people that you work with. That's very much what we talk about on the podcast, that, that company culture, that enjoyment, that ability to have a diverse group of people come together over a common goal and really find some intimacy and find some enjoyment and find some way to to work together despite probably some differences in the way that they see the world perhaps so I love to hear that but your company has been through something that hardly any company on earth has been through in the last year and as you mentioned before we started recording it's not the first time but actually the second time so to, to give some context to the audience you know, we talk about benefits, policies, hiring. We talk about offboarding practices designed to serve the employee and boost our employer brand. I mean, all of that. We've talked about the impact of COVID on this podcast and the maybe mental health epidemic. But what your company's been through, I think, in the past year is puts a lot of that in perspective. So if my notes are correct, at one time, you had 70% of your workforce in Ukraine. Is that right? I'm trying to do the percentages really quickly. Yes, yes, close to that. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, 60, 68, I think. But then again. I mean, close enough. And I guess, you know, my first question, just to get you started in telling the story, is when it became clear what was happening, that Ukraine was being invaded, what was your first kind of reaction, first thought? Was there any time to even formulate a thought, a message to your people? I imagine maybe you even have family and friends as well, and not just folks that work for and with you. How did you respond initially? So, well, for a couple of months and then a couple of weeks before the war, we were sort of trying to figure it out what is going to happen or not. 
So what we did is we we took about 35 people and we moved them to Poland just to be on the cautious side because neither I or Boria, who is the CEO, believed that it was going to happen. It was too preposterous. It was like way out. When it happened, we actually somehow figured that out like a couple hours ahead of what was happening. I was driving from New Hampshire to Boston and literally making phone calls to like anybody I could reach. Everybody in the U.S. was doing pretty much the same thing, right? So we have a bunch of people in the U.S. Everybody jumped, not everybody, but I mean, whomever we can find, jump on the phone, start calling, saying, war is going to start in three hours, get your stuff together, move. Unfortunately, only some of them were able to wake up and believe us. Like my own sister who lives in Kiev, well, now she's in Poland, wouldn't believe me. She just went back to sleep. And she ended up spending seven days in the basement without electricity, under bombs and stuff like that. It's a horror story. And uh, my dad wouldn't believe me. And some of my, you know, people who know me for 14 years wouldn't believe me. Said, oh, don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah. But as you know, it happened. And basically, we were in a really tough spot. We had 750 people with family, friends, animals in Kiev, and we had to move them at least to Lviv, which is the western part of Ukraine, which was less dangerous. So we were running buses every single day, sometimes multiple buses. We were taking, you know, friends and family and, uh, I mean, dogs and cats and hamsters. I mean, you wouldn't believe it. And it was a logistical nightmare. Surprisingly enough, not surprisingly enough, I mean, I have a huge belief in my guys, but basically everybody got on board. It was a week without sleep. We were sleeping for two hours a day, and everybody, we found the housing, we found the buses, you know, found the gas, we found the cash, all those things, and we moved about 650 people. This is just immediate employees, plus their families with small kids. It was real. I mean, I'm not sure I ever want to go through this experience again, even with this, you know, with uh, knowledge that comes with that stuff. It was very hard on people. We had family separations all the time because women were able to leave Ukraine with kids and stay in 24-hour lane in the freezing weather. It was real. So that gives you a little bit of perspective, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so well over a 1,000 people that you're trying to care for. Did you at some point, you know, early on or later kind of reveal what was going on within your company to customers to sort of you know, ask for understanding or support or, hey, we might be a bit delayed on, you know, like, how did you handle any of that? Or were they really understanding? No, we didn't. I mean, we have the banner on the web page and stuff like that. But surprisingly enough, support is one of the things which I do. I run support. We have four products. We have zero losses, literally. Somehow we managed to do it. Well, partially, partially. So we have about 100 people in support. 45 of them are in Philippines. So that helped a lot, right? We moved essential personnel to Poland. We had zero service interruption. Everything was secured, bottom down. That particular part of the plan worked really well. I mean, the smartest thing we did was those, you know, this 30 people. That saved us, it saved our customers, it saved everybody. Because they were able to maintain the company and keep it running. No problems at all. It's funny because, you know, the, our support scores only went up by like 0.5%, which is amazing. Maybe because people under pressure perform better, but everybody tightened up, 
off we go. There are less of us now. People are busy. I can tell you stories where people were working, literally saying, I'm sorry, I have to leave the meetings because I have to go to bomb shelter. And they would go down to bomb shelter and continue the meeting. It's stunning. Do you ever get the impression that work actually helped them, like actually helped them get through the fear and what they were going through, having something else to focus on besides the sound of whatever was going on above them? It's not just impression. I actually had multiple conversations with a lot of people. They're saying the only escape for me from stop reading the news and worrying about my family is to dedicate myself to work because, you know, while I'm working, I'm on it. Uh, There's another interesting sort of problem which came in. So a lot of our guys want to volunteer. And obviously, you know, we contribute computers, money, and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of our guys want to volunteer. So they figured out the schedule where during the day they can deliver humanitarian aid and during night, put in whatever, 12 hours of work to keep things going. So and it's been very steady. It's sort of, uh, there are a couple of Slack channels which we have, like help each other. People get together, contribute money, deliver goods. Primarily, obviously, it's humanitarian stuff. We're not doing much for the war. But there are like multiple millions of dollars which went up that way. And we had one guy in the company who was able personally raise $2.5 million. I have no idea how he was able to do that. But just one guy, a developer in one of our products, it's phenomenal. That's amazing to see people rally together to that degree and to look out for one another, not just their family, but the, but the other people that perhaps they now consider family or some version of it as a result of having been through these things together. It's amazing. It really shows you what humans are made of. What do things look like now? Well, now we're going through the toughest period. And the toughest period is, you know, when adrenaline is down, but you still have to maintain this high level of uh, awareness and job and job ethics and stuff like that. That is hard on people. There's a stagnation. Obviously, we're dealing with that. I mean, we provide all sorts of help. We try to do psychological help. We do the prep talks and stuff like that. But obviously, it is affecting us. I mean, productivity is not down. Support is not down. Everything is up and running. But you can feel that people want this thing to be resolved. You know, we're in the 21st century. We're in the middle of the war for crying out loud. This is ridiculous. And uh, it's impossible to live without seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. But nobody can really see it. So we might get stuck with the situation for quite a while. We might deal with uh, new Israel. And Israel been you know able to do this stuff really well. I mean, right now they have a bit of a problem, no doubts about it, but they've been living with the war and uh, phenomenal success with technological companies. So that may be Ukraine's future. Do you have still have a ton of people in Ukraine or have most moved out as they've been able to into Poland and other places? We actually have, I wouldn't say a ton of people, but we have quite a few. I, I'm not sure about the numbers, but quite a few of them return to Kiev, surprisingly enough, I actually go to the office. Because Kiev is not under immediate attack. They do have sirens every once in a while. But uh, they're disciplined, very disciplined. They get their work job done, and they try to focus on what needs to be done versus what's going on around them. That's amazing. I've got to wonder if people feel, you know, regardless of how they felt about working for Airslate in the past, going through this, receiving that type of support, the logistics, the humanitarian aid, you got to wonder if people feel like, oh, my gosh, like this is home now. You know, do you think that that translates into this feeling or or maybe the opposite where people are like, 
I just want to forget all about that season of my life and move on, <laughs> you know? <laughs> hey, I can give you a popular party line, but I'll be honest. People tend to remember bad things much better than they remember the good things. So, I mean, yes, I have a lot of friends in the company. I go there. I mean, I used to go every month and a half, but I would go as well. We have people whom we know, families whom we know, so on forth. And they would call me and say, you know, you guys, thank you very much, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, you're talking, when you're talking about a mass of 800 people with family, everyday problems, somebody's grandmother is not feeling well, and we need to figure out how to deliver her, you know, heart medication and things like that. They are very needy right now. They really need to be, I mean, every once in a while, you know, I would just want to say, hey, guys, you know, it's war. It's stuff on everybody. Get your stuff together. But some of them obviously feeling a lot of pressure. And that puts a lot of pressure on us to keep them. Some of them performing so well. I'll give you an example. So there was a period of time when only 40% of the force on a particular product was working. And they were delivering 95% on roadmap. Wow. So now it becomes stable and we want regular performance. I don't want anybody to work for 48 hours a day because sooner or later they're going to burn out. But on one hand, they do see how much we do. On the other hand, they're in such a, not personally, but the families, the neighbors are not in such a great shape that they sort of overlook that. Does that make sense? Yeah. I know it's sort of a difficult sort of thing to get around it. So. Well, you mentioned the stagnation. I, I think that probably is a lot of it, right? Initially, with all the adrenaline and all, all the all the newness to it, and you feel like, oh, my company is providing, like they might even be saving my life in some cases, right? Or assisting to, right? But then over the course of months and months and months, it's like yeah, there's such need. There is such a need that, I mean, we're humans. We just have to remember that. That's all. I mean, if, if anybody ends up in my shoes or in my company shoes in the future, just remember that stagnation is the most difficult part to go over. And you have to prepare people for that ahead of time. It is very difficult. Amazing stuff. As we're wrapping up here, I'm curious, hope and pray you never see anything like this in your professional career again, obviously, <laughs> right? But... What lessons do you think that you'll take away from this experience that, that might be applicable to your more run-of-the-mill challenges you know, throughout the next 14 years or whatever the case may be? <laughs> I don't know how long it's going to be. Uh, probably forever. So number one, have a plan B. Always have a plan B. Assumption is a mother of all misfortunes. Let me put it politely. So don't make assumptions that things will just go blow over. Tell you the interesting thing is, so we have grown from four people to 100 people, I mean, to 14 people in like three years, then to 100 people in one year, and then from 100 to 800 people, like three years or four years. And the funny thing is that, you know, when it's 100 people, there are two interesting parts. It's a family, right? You can still maintain a family. And it is, uh, if you think about army, it's sort of... Uh, Special forces. They can do anything, anytime. You can wake anybody at night. You just take care of the stuff. Once you go over like 300 or 400, which is, by, by the way, beyond my capacity. My capacity is about 100 people. Uh, that's where border gets in uh, very heavily. It is no longer a family of special force. It's a regular army, right, with a hierarchy and so on and so forth. And transitioning from family-based environment with special forces into the army is incredibly painful. You should do a podcast on this. You should find like five companies and people sharing stories because it's a nightmare. 
you have people whom you know for like 10 years and you have people who just walk in and you have to treat them on an equal basis. And that's only one of the problems. There are like literally dozens of problems. So I'm not sure if that's a lesson or not, but I'm saying that if you are willing to grow that rapidly, be prepared for those problems. Talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. As far as the war, there's not much you can do to prepare for this thing, but having plan B really helps. That's as much as I can say. And be prepared to go. That scale problem is, is really interesting. How I've heard it described from leadership is, you know, there are, you know, maybe there's technological issues to scale. Maybe there's logistical issues to scale. But mostly what I hear is that there's interpersonal issues to scale, right? Is that when you have 100 people, the last person I interviewed, his number was like 70. He didn't quite get to 100. For him, it was he got over 60, 70, and he was like, I can't bear the burdens of all these people. I can't really know them. I can't really like spend emotional energy on each one because it's just too many and I'm just a man. Like I don't have it in me, you know? And uh, and so, like you said, it gets from this family atmosphere where you know everybody's name and what their skill set is and what, and more or less what's going on in their life or at least what's going on in their work life. Right. No, you know their wives, you know their kids, whole nine years. Right, yes. right. To now, these, this, you've got people that feel like strangers to you you know, but you want to maintain this cohesiveness around culture and treat everybody the same. But it's a man, what a challenge. What an enormous challenge. It is. Especially from across the world. Yes. I mean, the reason why I was going there that often is because it's so important to see, you know, to see eye to eye. Zoom won't work. I'm sorry, but it just, for me, at least for me, it's not working. Uh, I need to see the person. Communication, the nonverbal stuff is so important. Yeah. I mean, in my company, we're, we're getting the entire company together once a year, you know, and like taking a trip together just so we can spend a few days uh, because I can't just go to one city and see everyone. They're spread out all over the country, you know, so it's, it's impossible. I'd have to just fly around all the time, right, to see everybody. And so we get them all in one place. But, you know, I think for similar purposes, it's like there's a trust that's built there's the nonverbals that are so important. And without that, you just tend to start to doubt people. You doubt their intentions, you know, their motivations. And worse yet, they doubt yours as a leader, right? Exactly. And that's where it all falls apart. Well, I, mean, I can give you a little bit of an anecdote about this stuff. I mean, I have to interview people a lot. You know what I do is I try to make them laugh. Somebody told me a long time ago when I was, I think, studying psychology at MIT. I took one course. I didn't study psychology. But basically, <laughs> if you can't get person to laugh, you're not going to be able to work with them. And if you, don't the way, if you don't like the way they laugh, you're not going to be able to work with them. And I've been experimenting with this stuff, and I think it's 100% on the money. Wow. Sense of humor is so important. It has to be you know, sort of dual. You got to be able to get each other jokes. Otherwise, it's not going to work. So... I try to make people laugh at the interview. That's my approach. That's good. I'm, I'm going to take that one away as a very specific, practical note for me. I do a lot of interview. I do, I do final interviews. Try it. Let me know. Yeah. Oh, I bet. Yes. Well, this has been incredibly interesting and informative and moving, actually, you know, to hear about this. And I'm so sorry for what your people have been through. 
but also encouraged to see how you rallied together. It's, it's a really neat story. I 100% agree. But a day will come out stronger, better, uh, as long as we don't suffer any casualties, which I'm, I'm not a religious man, but I begin to pray, you know, every once in a while. So, Yeah, I don't blame you. Yeah, I would too. I would absolutely. Well, Vadim, this, like I said, this has been great. I really appreciate your time. I know you're a very busy man with a whole lot of people that you're trying to care for. I appreciate your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Nice meeting you. Nice to meet you as well. Take it easy. Thank you for listening, everyone. We'll, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Bragworthy Culture Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Fringe, the number one employee lifestyle and fringe benefits platform. With Fringe, you can empower employees with lifestyle benefits that can be personalized to reduce stress, give back time, and spark joy. Fringe, benefits for life. Contact us and find out more at fringe.us.